Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, inflation is pushing a military pay problem. Our soldiers, while they're going to get a 2.7% pay raise in the pay table, the actual buying power for the families is is the equivalent of a 3.5% pay cut. Two pressure points driving data in the Navy. What you're seeing is pressure on the top and pressure on the bottom to completely change the way that we're approaching data, data management, the way that we think about decision, decision support, Uh, the timeliness of the data, the accessibility of the data. And the most important cyber protection isn't necessarily the sexiest. These will sound mundane, but patch, patch, patch. Keep your software as up to date as possible. It's Monday, November 22nd, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. A draft of the Joint All-Domain Command and Control Cross-Functional Team's new implementation plan is ready for Deputy Secretary of Defense Kath Hicks's signature. The deputy of the JADC2 cross-functional team, Charlene Laughlin, tells FedScoop the strategy includes five lines of effort, data, human enterprise, technology, nuclear command and control, and building a mission partner environment. No word yet on when Hicks might sign off on the strategy. The General Services Administration will add to its strategy to operationalize the data it's getting from its government-wide acquisition contracts. The Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service, Sonny Hashmi, says the agency can already identify trends in data across the acquisition marketplace. Hashmi says the agency will deliver those insights in real time to contracting and program officers to drive decision-making. Six technology vendors can resell parts of the Air Force's Platform One software development environment under a new agreement. That agreement lets the vendors sell the platform's Iron Bank and Big Bang products to other parts of the Pentagon. The agreement's and other transaction authority between Platform One and the nonprofit Catalyst Campus. You can read more about all these headlines and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. A scheduling note, you'll get a new Daily Scoop podcast tomorrow and Wednesday, and then a break for the Thanksgiving holiday. After Thanksgiving, the next new Daily Scoop podcast is next Monday, the 29th. The National Defense Authorization Act the Senate will debate includes a 2.7% pay increase for uniformed military personnel. That pay increase, though, could turn out to be false. Major General John Ferrari, U.S. Army retired, is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's former director of program analysis and evaluation for the Army. General, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Uh, My friend Todd Harrison from CSIS was on the program recently talking about that pay cut and the reason that it could be fleeting at least and a ghost raise at best. You're writing about that pretty extensively. What's the reason for that pay raise not being real? Welcome, General. Thank you for having me on the show, and I appreciate uh, the invite. And and you are correct, and Todd is correct. So in July of 2021, I wrote an article that there's an inflation anaconda, right, like the snake that's going to squeeze and weaken our national security and national defense. And sadly, this has come to pass, right? We have a 6.2% inflation rate. And so just for our soldiers, right, uh, they're, they're scheduled to get a 2.7% pay raise. So that's a, a, a nearly 3.5% real pay cut. And that's just in base pay. You've seen in the past week or two, the Secretary of Defense is weighing in with emergency measures 
to boost the housing allowance, the temporary lodging expenses, and some other things to, uh, to compensate for rent prices that are up over 11%, more in, in some of the areas where our soldiers live, fuel prices that are up 30%. So our, our soldiers, while they're going to get a 2.7% pay raise in the pay table, the actual buying power for the families is it's the equivalent of a 3.5% pay cut. I noted over the weekend, if I saw one headline about the the crunch at the bottom end of the pay scale, for the especially for enlisted personnel, I probably saw half a dozen. And to be fair, they may have been talking past each other. It may have been one report that other organizations glommed onto. But that's a narrative that is really high profile, I imagine, inside the Pentagon for the leaders who lead the men and women who are going to be most affected by inflation. Isn't that right? It is. And if you think about it, as you know, our military is a reflection of society. And so those at the bottom of the pay scale have the least amount of discretionary income to compensate for these type of inflation pay cuts or inflation taxes, how you want to look at it. So if you're at the upper end of the pay scale or even in the middle, you know, three and a half percent, right, you can make adjustments. But if you're at the lower end, you know, it, it's very hard to do that. And then you especially those are the ends and the people that are living paycheck to paycheck to paycheck. So if it costs an extra 15 or 20 dollars to fill the tank of gas, right, that that money's got to come out of food or something else. And and especially if rent is going up, right, uh, that that also impacts them more than it does those at the upper end of the pay scale. You write in this piece that uh, the budgets for fiscal 22 and 23 present different challenges. And you talked about the 22 challenge and the fact that uh, the, the net pay raise is actually a cut. What's it look like in 23? You write in this piece, the budget for 23 is even bleaker. Yes. Yeah, so in 23, the uh, Office of Management and Budget, the, administ- the Biden administration, has projected a, a overall increase for the defense spending of only $2 billion, which is essentially a 0% growth to the defense budget. What we know already is that based upon the statutory formula for next year's pay raise for the military, it's 4.7%. So first off, within DOD, they've got to figure out how to cut training and modernization of the size of the force just to pay for that 4.7%. So that's going to be less training, less modernization for China, or we're going to have to fire a bunch of soldiers in order to make the payroll. But if inflation is currently 6.2% and we're already underfunded you know, by 3.5%, well, 4.7 is still less than 6.2, and it doesn't look like inflation's abating anytime soon. So next year's pay raise is also shaping up to be a, a real pay cut for the troops. It's, it, there's this year lag that, that impacts. And so you'll have the compounding effect of the two years in a row if we're not careful, if Congress doesn't act uh, this year and the administration doesn't act. The statutory formulas work well in a benign inflation or decreasing inflation environment, which is what we've had for 30 years. Well, now that inflation is going up, we have to realize that that the way we did it isn't working in this and make the adjustments right away to protect the, the soldiers who are out there every day. I want to pull back more broadly because one of the challenges that strikes me is that we're in three budget cycles at a time. We're executing fiscal uh, 20. Uh, well, we're in fiscal 22 in a CR right now. Um, we're trying to work through the rest of 22 in Congress, uh, including the NDAA. And the agency is already working on uh, fiscal 23 and thinking toward 24. What do we do to build elasticity in assuming that the real 
issue here is what we've been dealing with for the past 18 months and not the inflation certainty that we had over the past number of years. That's the anomaly, isn't it, General, and not the fact that we have inflation moving up and down in a more rapid pace. Well, it is. And, you know, the system is built for retirees and for Social Security and VA recipients, right? Their pay raise is set uh, two months before it goes up. So you'll see the retired pay is going up 5.9% for Social Security disability payment, right? It's this, it's this process that we have that requires you to set the military pay 18 months, essentially, in front of when, when it will take effect. Now, in all fairness, right, the administration can go in and A, ask Congress to make a change right now, and B, go into the Pentagon's budget and, and increase the amount for inflation right away. Uh, so, so there are ways around the system, but, but you're right, uh, absent intervention at the highest level of government by either the Congress or the president, right, the system is set on autopilot and is not responsive, and the people who bear the risk of that then are our troops. All right, here's your bottom line, sir. Passing the defense budget in December with the additional $25 billion to uh, to ease the pay situation should be coupled with a revised 2023 OMB top line of $806 billion. What does that 806 number include uh, vis-a-vis what we've discussed so far, General? All right, so that 806 number gives the Department of Defense $50 billion over what is currently planned inside the the. the 2023 budget. So that would be enough to cover uh, pay raise up to 6%, plus it would uh, cover inflation of fuel and everything else. And it would would provide what we're needed, right? Because if you're China looking at the $756 billion budget, you're pretty happy because you know that the Defense Department is going to be squeezed to fit inside of that. And the military is going to have to get smaller and slow modernization. So the 806 billion, the 50 billion, just allows the Department of Defense to keep pace with inflation uh, and with its plans vis-a-vis China, Middle East, and Russia. Uh, If we want to accelerate that, then they'll have to add more. Major General John Ferrari, U.S. Army, retired. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate it, General. Thank you very much. You can find a link to John's piece about military pay and the budget in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Navy's force structure and a holistic look at the sea services is what a new think tank from the Navy League will work on. The new dean of the Center for Maritime Strategy, Admiral Jamie Fogo, U.S. Navy retired, is on Tuesday's show. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Tuesday afternoon at vetscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Navy has two new data initiatives that will get it closer to plugging into the Defense Department's Joint All-Domain Command and Control. The Navy's Chief Data Officer, Tom Sasala, discussed them with my colleague Wyatt Cash and Juliana Vida, Group Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer at Splunk and former Navy Deputy Chief Information Officer. In this highlight of that conversation, Sasala reviews the two highest-level data initiatives his service is working on. The first one's called Jupiter. Jupiter's going to give us the ability to fuse information across different domains, bring information together, allow people to share information at echelons, um, as well as allow the secretary to get a kind of comprehensive view of all the things that are going on in a very large department. Another activity we've also established or initiated is something called Constellation. It's a process that we've actually formalized over the last year and a half or so that really allows us to take 
the, the, the needs of the department in terms of decision-making and creating operational advantage, turn them into data needs, right? And then take those and turn those into actual decision-worthy content, whether that's a dashboard, some sort of analysis, uh, analysis or predictive analysis or something like this. And the last thing I'd like to mention are two very interrelated things that we have going on right now, one of which is really data-focused and one of which is more broadly IT-focused, and that is Supernova and Cattle Drive. Uh, so Supernova is the uh, data rationalization effort that we're going under right now, which is a subcomponent of Cattle Drive, which is the broader IT rationalization activity that we have ongoing right now. And so what we're trying to do is really identify those duplicative systems, uh, kind of cut them out uh, and repurpose that money and reinvest them into more enterprise scale systems that we can use moving forward. Well, and just to elaborate a little, how do those data sharing programs uh, tie into the work uh, with the other military services and, and what they're doing and, and JADSEE too in general? Right, yeah. So especially on the data front, but more broadly across the IT infrastructure, and you know, we've been working very closely with the joint staff, DOD CIO, as well as DOD CDO. And so uh, Jupiter is actually a tenant in the Advana program, which is the DOD's enterprise analytics capability. Uh, and so we're using that mechanism that we've established through Constellation to get data into Jupiter and then feed that into Advana. And so we've we've provided this information to OSD and to the joint staff as well for use on the JADC2 side. We're working very closely on with our OpNav partners and our headquarters and Marine Corps partners uh, to leverage these processes to assist on what I would characterize as the kind of operational side of the Department of the Navy, uh, rather than the kind of uh, business or uh, uh, kind of readiness side, which is more, um, uh, you know, more headquarters oriented than something that is at the pointy end of the spear, like carrier strike groups and, you know, uh, expeditionary units. I appreciate you laying that out for us. Um, Juliana, from an industry perspective, but also as someone who's worked inside the Pentagon and the Department of Navy, how would you characterize the progress that you're seeing to integrate data gathering and analytics? Well, I have to say, I characterize the progress as um, exciting, hopeful, and and pretty um, pretty significant over the just the last couple of years. I would say that there's what I love to see is this continued dialogue, engaging with leaders like Tom and, and him engaging with his peers across the Navy, up and down from the secretary, down to the fleet units, across to the Marine Corps. It's it's new. I mean, it's it's you wouldn't think it, but it, it really hasn't been all, always been that way. And another thing I'd like to say, in, outside of just the Department of the Navy, at the Department of Defense level, um, I'll just go back to the, the uh, DOD data strategy from last year that uh, Secretary Deputy Secretary of Defense Norquist had put out, but is still relevant, the data strategy, which outlined this Vaultus um, uh, acronym, I'll call it, but, you know, about data being a strategic asset. You know, we talk about that at Splunk. We, I know other vendors talk about that, but to hear the most senior DOD leaders say that is a game changer. I mean, it truly is, because without that kind of top-level support, it's very difficult for well-meaning, smart, authoritative guys like Tom and his peers to get stuff done. But with that top cover, it's so important. And not to go through all the all the um, aspects of Vaultus, but it helped, It talks about data being visible, accessible, trustworthy, et cetera. But there's language in there that I just want to remind uh, the folks that are viewing, and that is that the, 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 um, the strategy itself says, it is the responsibility of all DOD leaders to treat data as a weapon system. Not all DOD people on the DOD CIO staff, not all J6 and, and N6 and you know uh, C, C4I people, all DOD leaders. And that is 
really something new and, and necessary if we're going to be talking about ever achieving anything like JADC2 or joint warfighting construct. Well, um, Thomas, back to you. Um, given the longstanding traditions uh, and some might say the bureaucracies inside the service branches, what's different today that's likely to give real traction to these data sharing initiatives? Yeah, so I think Juliana kind of hit on one of the most important things, which is just senior leader support at the highest level. Uh, and, and the other thing that I would like to mention, uh, which is something people don't really focus on, but I, I call it a sea change, not to pun being in the Navy, but it, it, it's... <laughs> The people that are coming into the department today are digital natives, and this is the life that they live and have lived, and they know no other life. And so they walk into a department that is not exactly where they are in their private lives. Uh, and so what you're seeing is pressure on the top and pressure on the bottom to completely change the way that we're approaching data, data management, the way that we think about decision, decision support, uh, the timeliness of the data, the accessibility of the data. Um, just think of anyone today on your smartphone, right? Uh, you open your smartphone, you have access to a myriad of applications, right? Um, we hope that there will be a day in the future for the DOD that it's something similar, right? That I'm not having to uh, tote my government laptop around and get on the VPN and then access a very specific site only to be redirected to another site and then have to ask for permissions to get into that site only to find that that was the wrong site. I need to find another site, right? Um, and so uh, I'm not saying this just happened to me, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but the thing is, is there really is this demonstrable change and you see, see people for the first time, and I've been in this business a long time and I've been in the data business a long time, people are talking about it at every level. And so now the challenge ahead of us is how do we orchestrate and organize for battle? How do we get after this? And how do we uh, create unity of effort and unity of, of focus, right? Um, on the things that matter to make the changes that are required uh, to create that sea change. The Navy's Chief Data Officer, Tom Sasala, along with former Navy Deputy Chief Information Officer, Juliana Vita, now with Splunk, and my Scoop News Group colleague, Wyatt Cash. You can watch the entire conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. A huge list of technology stars will be at the Security Transformation Summit Thursday, December 2nd. Speakers from CISA, the Defense Digital Service, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and many other federal agencies will be at this virtual event. FedScoop's hosting it, and you can see the agenda and sign up now through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Cybersecurity and physical security are on a collision course. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has new recommendations to stop that collision or at least soften it. David Mussington's executive director of the Infrastructure Security Division at CISA. David, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. What did you see happening in the landscape, not just in the federal government, but uh, across the country that caused you to want to address this connection of cybersecurity and physical security. Welcome. Thank you first for the for the, the opportunity to speak to you, Frank. Um, I think that generally speaking, physical infrastructure are enabled by cyber technology so that whenever you get a, a cyber incident, there's a physical effect. And that's really what we see when we look at colonial pipelines, we look at GBS foods. We see effects uh, you know, from gas lines in one place to potential um, you know, shortages on shelves of grocery stores. Uh, these are effects that individual people know in their lives and get concerned about, and it's up to us to um, 
provide remediation for some of the risks and uh, provide information on what to do. Whenever I see recommendations, David, I always think the organization making the recommendations is doing so because the organizations that they're recommending to may be falling short in these areas. Is that a fair assumption in my part about, about these four recommendations that you make? Well, I'm not sure that's entirely fair to, uh, to, to industry. I think that it's, uh, it's um, emerging consensus on best practices and things that work so that people try and um, focus in on uh, things that seem to be chronic chronic problems that people think have solutions so that they, they talk up those solutions more, uh, more dramatically, perhaps for effect. The first recommendation that you make is developing an incident response plan. What are the best components, the, the best practices for the components of an incident response plan? You know, one thing you need to do is you need to have a list of areas of concern that you're trying to, to protect against, not everything. It means um, a short list of procedures. Um, you need to have information to implement a plan. You need to tell people about the plan. After all, the best plan that is never told to anybody is not much use. You need to train to a plan, um, and you need to know what the outcomes are so you can measure success. So you need metrics. The, the second item is backup systems, and it strikes me we should have all learned that lesson from what we've seen from ransomware attacks over the past. Well, they've been going on for a long time, but they've been very prominent, it seems to me, over the last six to 12 months. You know, we should have learned that, but um, some of us individually have backups that don't that fail. So we need to check those backups. But backups um, and offline backups, not on the same system where you are operating generally, are the best solution and the best insurance against uh, you know, that awful dilemma of what do I do if someone is, is ransoming me? Um, because if one chooses to pay, the odds are that you may not get your data back anyway. So also just for ordinary continuity, uh, weather emergency, fire, flood, et cetera, you need backups of your sensitive data so that you can reconstitute and recover your business or your life, your livelihood, uh, in case of uh, untoward events. Um, so backups that make sense for a lot of different perspectives. You used a word there that that uh, triggered a thought in my mind. We have not talked in the federal government for a long time, I think, about continuity of operations plans. And I don't know if it's a result of the pandemic or whatever, but when you say continuity, that came to my mind right away. And it strikes me that in a ransomware landscape like we are in today, that idea of, of hardening a broader uh, coup plan is probably more important than ever. No, absolutely. I mean, I think redundancy in planning, you know, my own background at RAND and elsewhere, placed a lot of emphasis on preparedness, prevention, protection in advance of adverse events. Backup fits into that um, envelope pretty well. Um, I do think that um, continuity is sort of boring when you don't use the plans, and that's one of, that's one of one of the problems. You know, you can exercise continuity plans as well for events that never occur. You can see how that can become an activity that goes on the back burner a little bit when you have more pressing business uh, business concerns. But very important, very important. The third item on your list of recommendations is isolating systems. And under this, you write, if the bad guys get in, make it hard for them to get data out. That strikes me that that's becoming easier to do than ever, if I understand the technology correctly. It's, it is becoming easier to isolate systems. You know, there's process steps you can take and there are technical steps you can take. You know, as far back as 10 or 15 years ago, we had data diodes that would stop data from going out of a defined uh, domain or network. Uh, more recently, we've got um, cyber software-defined networks and agent-based techniques for controlling traffic flow. 
um, measuring traffic flow, not only at the data layer, but lower down through automated techniques that can, through data loss prevention um, agents and software, can, you know, use identity as a way to restrict um, how, quote, data wants to travel. Data doesn't, of course, want to do anything. Um, people need to access data for a purpose, and those, the legitimacy of those access attempts is, is the key. And zero trust and principles like that are designed to make, you know, make sure that you have accountabilities on access and utilization that you might not have if you don't have those systems in place. The last recommendation that you make is one that's been a point of contention about how to do it and what to do, and that's reporting an incident. Um, that concept has been difficult for, I think, private sector organizations and federal agencies to think about what do you want to know at CISA and how soon do you want to know it and what do you do with that information when someone reports something? Well, certainly we would like to know as soon as possible. Um, you know, the law is in, is evolving in this area. Some states have much more more prominent and draconian, I suppose, laws, depending on one's perspective on draconian. Um, we would like to know what's affected, um, what kind, if you have done any internal or had a contract to do um, some sort of forensics um, disambiguation of what's happening. We would like to know that. We'd like to know as soon as possible because we don't want other people to be victimized by the same threat actor. Um, what do we do with the information? Mostly we'll share with interagency partners subject to anonymization and other protocols that we have in place when we receive our requests. Um, one of our partners is the FBI. Obviously, we aren't in the law enforcement entity. They are. They would pursue whatever law enforcement equities are involved should uh, a report come to their attention. So it's really information for for disclosure to tell people in, in adjacent um, areas that an event has occurred. We want to protect the equities of the business to make sure that they aren't embarrassed. So anonymization is key. Um, we want to know about risks that are emerging or risks that aren't mitigated so that we can prepare countermeasures with our industry and governmental partners. For a long time, that embarrassment, that stigmatization was one of the holdups, especially for private sector organizations to report breaches. Do you get a sense that that has dissipated, that organizations are more willing to report, and maybe it's the details of the reports that they're not as sure about uh, as maybe they should be? I think, I think that's true. I think over the last two or three years, I've seen a much more, a much greater willingness of people to sort of fess up to, I guess, that they are being victimized by like other people. I think that the sharing of details is still difficult, and there is the old NDA problem, where if a company engages a private sector contractor to do remediation or breach response, often the first thing they do is pull out an NDA and make them sign non-disclosure rules that actually prevent information exchange. Now, there are specific reasons why companies do that. It's not just not just reputation. It might actually be accountability and liability. Um, from our perspective, um, you know that's a, that's a barrier to information exchange and a barrier to preparedness. If it becomes an impediment to lessons learned across companies, um, so on the other hand, we understand private sector is not in business to give information to us. They're in business for themselves. Um, so that we try and um, inculcate trust in our relationships. We, you know, when people give us information, we preserve it. And if it's, in, if it's shared in a critical infrastructure context, there are certain legal 
covers for that information to make sure it isn't disclosed. You write uh, toward the end of this piece, and we'll link to it at thedailyscooppodcast.com. As we look ahead, we know our adversaries will continue to try to exploit vulnerabilities, utilize ransomware as a threat tactic, and target critical infrastructure. Given that escalation, David, what should organizations be doing above and beyond these four recommendations that you make to try to protect themselves? I know we can't anticipate what the bad guys will do next, but to at least try to stay ahead of the curve preparedness-wise. So, you know, I'd ask them to sort of, obviously, you know, these will sound mundane, but patch, patch, patch. Keep your software as up-to-date as possible, especially if you are using major platforms, which I won't name because it's probably not convenient to do so. But, but you know, keep your software up-to-date. Keep your people trained on what to do. Implement best practices, ordinary NIST best practices or Center for Internet Security Top 20 best practices on the way you operate your network and your devices. Have a mobile device policy have password policies, and train your people on, on what is acceptable use of the devices that you allocate for them to, to operate on your behalf. Um, if you do that and you're transparent uh, in the information you share um, and you have a good infrastructure for understanding what's going on on your own network, um, you'll be ahead of the game. No guarantees, of course. The people with very good preparedness have still been victimized, but they tend to recover faster and they tend to have lower losses, I believe, because they've put some thinking into their cybersecurity, just as they would into other, other areas of business risk. After all, um, you don't have it, these computers and IT connectivity for cybersecurity. You have it because it advances your business. So give to your, give to your cyber equities the same sort of attention you would to other areas of business risk. David Mussington of CISA, thank you very much for joining me today. Pleasure to have you on the program. Very welcome. You can find a link to David Mussington's column with all the recommendations in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The new leader of the Center for Maritime Strategy, Admiral Jamie Fogo, U.S. Navy retired, is on Tuesday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening. 